Good morning, everybody. Thank you for greeting each other so warmly, and it's good to catch up with friendships in the middle of the week like this. I mean, it is kind of the middle of the week. It's the beginning and the end and the middle for me, so it's a good day. And it's also good to meet new people, to reach out a hand and to welcome those who are with us to worship with us and also maybe seeking a church home. We're glad you're here, and we hope that this might be a place that you feel uh, welcomed and you feel comfortable with. Pray with me. Lord God, you have invited us into this day, and for that we are so very, very grateful. Not only that, but you rolled out the red carpet for us. You made the day and the morning that broke the night. We've come here from our homes, from having something to eat, and our families that surround us, and our friends that greet us. For that, we are grateful. We pray only today, God, that we listen for your voice, that we listen for your voice that speaks to us in music, in scripture, in word preached, in prayer. That word that seems to be able to make its way through all the clutter that we have surrounding our hearts to penetrate, to transform. And so, God, we commit this day to you. We commit our time of worship to you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm afraid you're the difficulty, Miss Annie. Now, I'll keep it up what she's learned. You're quite right here. I don't think we need sending from the table. After all, she is a guest of honor. Bring her plate back. If she were a seen child, none of you would tolerate any... But she's not. I think some compromise is called for. Bring her plate. Please! Occasionally, another hand can smooth things out. There. Now, shall we start all over? Woo! 
The scene from the 1962 movie, The Miracle Worker, the story of Helen Keller, has captured my imagination for decades. And one of the reasons that it has is because it's proven for me to be a powerful metaphor. And it interprets for me the sometimes very ferocious relationship that we have with a creator God. And to be honest with you, I've occupied a lot of different roles in that scene. Uh, everyone from the, the one who stands in front of the door to the one who stands weeping to the one who stands grasping. It, the, the scene gnaws and it twists inside of me when I see the ferocious anger of a person who cannot make sense of the world. There's no way that they can make any sense of the world. The violent frustration, can you imagine, when you have no means, no means to scream your anger or no way to hear a whispered I love you. No way to make a connection between something and your mind. It all is chaotic. And I look at this scene and I am struck so much by the fearless determination of Annie Sullivan, who was her teacher, Helen's teacher. And what she wanted to do more than anything was open the world for her. She wanted her to see the world for what it really was, even though she was blind and deaf. Her teacher sees something that no one else seems to see in her or believe that she's capable of doing. She sees Helen's potential. She sees her capacity to learn. And this is it. She sees a future for Helen. The others treated her more like a crippled puppy. And um, then it touches me. Because I see Christ knowing Knowing the deeper story of every person 
and the way to their wholeness. And this is not a soft, warm way to wholeness. It is fierce, this way of Jesus. Fierce. But then I'll, I'll be honest with you, and I get scared because I'm afraid that I'm afraid that all too often we in the church get in the way of that fierce love. I'm afraid that we think we're being kind when we placate or compromise or modify. We lose our way, and here's the thing. We start believing that we're in the business of attraction. That rather than a scene in which the light comes on, that we need to make it more fun to be in church. That we need to make it more convenient to be in church so it doesn't interfere with everyone's very, very busy schedule. How can we help God be more relevant? How can we help God be less demanding? Less so than maybe, you know, God seems so bossy, so authoritarian, and maybe God should be less needy. Nobody likes a needy, bossy God. And I wonder when, when I hear these type of things in planning and, and whatever we're doing, I wonder, when did we go insane? That's what I wonder. When did we absolutely go insane in the church? When did we go crazy with the notion that we have to sell God like a wonder mop? I don't. I, 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 it's beyond me. When did we begin diluting the most intense, demanding, and ultimate human experience? This experience that was so beautifully demonstrated in this scene. That, that, that ultimate ex- human experience of being set free from a sightless and silent world, a, a, an unloving and a dark world. And when we are invited in a fierce invitation into this one wild and precious life, that we have each been given by a creator who made us for this freedom. Made us for this freedom. While on a mission trip in Kenya two years ago, our team was invited to tour a a Kazuri bead factory that was founded in 1975 as a means to provide jobs and self-sufficiency for Kenyan women who were marginalized and who were cast off. And these women, some of them were from abusive families. Some of them were thrown out of their house because there was no food and they needed to save the food for the males in the family. Some of them have been beaten. Some of them, horrendous, horrendous. But here they were in this factory, all of them together, off the streets. And um, we were invited to tour the factory and to see how they made these beautiful jewelry. So we entered a room where about 100 women, women sat assembling jewelry. And first of all, the women, when we came in, they were clapping and they sang this song for us. So they were used to tourists coming through. But they sang a beautiful song of praise to God. I mean, it was beautiful. And they were, it wasn't just uh, something that they did because, I mean, they got into it. They got up and they were dancing and they were singing. And, were, and we were just so happy. And then they sat down and the guy turned to us and said, now they'd like a song from you. <laughs> there was a hundred of them and there's six of us. And between the six of us, not one of us shared an ounce of DNA that said we were, could do music. Not one of us. So we sang Jesus Loves Me. 
And uh, as we were singing, they took pity on us, and they began singing in their own language, Jesus loves me. Isn't that beautiful? So in this moment, we went from being this shabby uh, troubadours to being this full-fledged choir singing Jesus Loves Me. Then our guide introduced me as the pastor that was with the group. And all this noise went up among the women. Oh, you know, because they weren't used to seeing. They had never met a woman in ministry. And uh, so the guide then, uh, somebody said something to them, and the guide turned to me and, and said, they would like a word, pastor. And which means they would like a sermon. And there was a moment that I can't even describe to you. It's really, it's really a, a moment beyond description. And so in my feeble way, though, I'm going to try to describe it because it was a holy moment of transformation. When they said that, I experienced it so profoundly, so profoundly that when she asked me that, I almost just burst out in tears. I almost just cried because in that moment, they were the teacher pulling me out of the room. They were pulling me towards the pump. They wanted me to see and to experience and to, to understand by asking me that question, would you give us a word? I, and they were spelling out with their eyes and their scars the truth of Jesus and making an electric connection of understanding and a grand sigh of, of inside I felt myself go, oh, oh, this This is what it means. This is what it means. In that moment, the years between the writing of Scripture, the ancient text, and what the truth of the Scripture was, regardless of the story it was said in, came like a herd of horses galloping into my heart. And it was at this moment that there was a blurred line. There was no past. There was no future. Just an immediacy of Christ's presence that made me want to spin and made me want to shout and touch every face in that holy sanctuary that was a factory, a bead factory. It's what I wanted to do. This is, this, this is not just a story. It was my story. It was their story. It was our story together. And I shared with them the story from the text that's written in your bulletin. I'm not going to read that text. I'm going to tell you what it was like to share that text. I want you to read that text today. Read it with the image of, of, of Helen making her way. Read it with the image that God brings to you. But I shared with them the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And I shared with them, I said, this story is often misunderstood as you have been misunderstood. And they're nodding, and they know, and they see. And I shared with them that many do not understand that women, all women, at this time and in that place had no rights And no recourse. And they were clapping. They knew. They had no rights and no recourse for earning a living without a man. They couldn't do it. Only in the most ancient of ways. 
Whereas a man could divorce his wife by simply saying, I divorce you three times. They understood this. The men had their rights and they, were, they had been thrown out because they couldn't bear a child or they criticized or they burned the toast that morning. It was all legal. Anything. And Jesus talked with the woman. And during the course of their conversation, I shared with them that Jesus revealed that she had been married five times and she was now living with a man who wasn't her husband, who wouldn't give him, her, his name. And many people assume, I told them, that Jesus was lining up her offenses and showing what a, what a immoral, bad person she was and then how wonderful and giving Jesus is. But they forget, they forget that a woman who had been divorced five times was not a harlot. She was a throwaway. Chances are she couldn't bear children. So she had been passed around from family to family to family five times thrown out for being insufficient, for not being good enough. And this last man wouldn't even allow her to share his name. And they knew. They knew. Jesus was telling her not, you have some sinning to explain. Jesus was saying, I see you. I see you. I know your pain. Jesus was saying, you've been thrown away five times, and now you live in humiliation. I know that. And you're still the one I'm talking to. You're still the one I'm sharing the most important truth that I came to earth to share. I'm sharing it with you first. And he changed her narrative of her whole life. And I have to tell you that I looked into those beautiful, scarred and scared faces. And I saw not only myself, but I saw anyone who had ever been rejected, anyone who had ever been lost, anyone who had ever been humiliated and cast out. That's when the scripture became global. That it spoke to the heart in the midst of a story about the human condition that we have of pushing out and pushing aside. I looked at them and I saw Jesus. And we were all one with him. And we were all one with him and, to be honest with you, an almost unbearable union. Unbearable, why? Why? It was unbearable because it was, it's too much almost to take in when you're that close to Jesus. You, you, and honestly, I'm not sure you can sustain it there. It's just too overwhelming. Your legs shake. Your arms shake. Your lip trembles. You can't stop crying. It's, it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's so consuming. You can't stop crying. When the scripture and Jesus, and the love that God has for us, all comes out to be one thing, and that is the living testimony of our lives. And I told them, Jesus speaks to you today. 
with the same words of hope that he spoke to those women then. That's what I told them. I said, Jesus sees you. And they were crying. And I said, he knows your pain. He suffers with you in your humiliation. But then, here's the hope. It's not over. The story isn't over. The story of the Samaritan woman goes on. Jesus doesn't just reach out with a word of hope. No, Jesus doesn't leave before there is transformation of this woman's life. In Jesus, she finds a purpose. And in and with that purpose, she's empowered to become all that she was meant to be. So she simply drops her pitcher right where it is. She takes off running to, to the town. Just like the disciples dropped their nets and went off after Jesus. She did the same thing. It was immediate. It wasn't, wait till I get home and pack my bag. It wasn't, I need to go and tell the people off, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was, drop the picture, run back to the same people who had rejected her, to the same people who had marginalized her, the same people. And now she has something she wants to share with him. So already her transformation had taken place. Already, she wanted the people who hated her to know the love of Jesus, to know who Jesus was, already transformed. It's no longer about how she feels about them. It's no longer about their sins. Because right now, for this woman, it's about what has happened. It's about Jesus. And the amazing thing is, this is the most amazing thing of all. This would be a a preacher's dream come true. They listened to her. They believed her. Can you imagine that? They listened and they believed her. This woman that they had all these ideas about, that they had that they had rejected and they had they probably had her all figured out the women got together and talked about her and they didn't go at the same time she did to the well because they didn't want to be seen with her i mean it goes on and on and on they listened to her when she came running into that town square and what they did was they dropped everything and they came out to see for themselves and the amazing thing is that there was good news all around. Because what Jesus did with her was grace. What she did with them was grace. What they did with her was grace. They all came together in that beautiful moment where scripture tells us and tries to to promise us, look, trust us. This is how it works. This is how we are operating in the world together. Jesus isn't being nice to a bad woman. What a weak and watery illusion of what our mission entails. Jesus is bringing the good news to her and through her. So this isn't a cautionary tale about morality. It's a powerful message sent by our master, Jesus. And his determination to be a light in the darkness, to free us from whatever imprisons our hearts and minds, to to be our liberator. And it's about how our liberation, when we come into that freedom ourselves, changes our story 
And we become a central force of liberation as we walk along the long road of freedom. And all along the way, all along the way, we are to share that freedom and make it available to all the other prisoners. Do we do it passively? Sometimes it happens that way, and that's the bounty of God. But sometimes we can be a ferocious and determined teacher. And sometimes we can just be caught in the moment and let the, and let the spirit just, just absolutely just explode it out of us. That it can just come out the top of our head into the stratosphere, I guess I should say. And it, that happens sometimes too. That's called evangelism, by the way. Now, lest you should turn a button that says, turn off, turn it back on, that's evangelism. Sharing in the small ways and the big ways, but always sharing your story. Your story in Jesus. That story that you have, it's the, it's, it's the, it's the anatomy of evangelism. It's its intent. It's co-conspirator, the Holy Spirit, and its transformation. How are you changed the primary vocation of Jesus was that he was an evangelist. That was the primary calling. And we have been handed our sacred marching orders as evangelists as well. We can't follow Jesus and have no part in sharing the good news. That sets the prisoner free. It's simply not possible. And... You know, we'll do classes on it. We'll talk about it. We'll share about it. We'll try to allay your fears or whatever. It's a very natural way of living. You, you're not going to put on an evangelist hat. I hope you don't have one. And we're not going to make you do ridiculous things that are scary and that offend people. But you are going to be peculiar and different with the way you see life and the way you share life. He chose her to be the first evangelist, the first one to share the remarkable good news. So now I say to you, my friends, it's not so different from our story, your story and mine. And I tell you this, Jesus knows you. Jesus sees you. Jesus names your wounds and heals them. Jesus chooses you. And Jesus sends you. I hope that you're ready for the big adventure. Amen.